Thank you, Amber, for turning our hearts that we'd be stayed on Jehovah. And today we're here to worship the Lord together as a family. And um, it's just wonderful to be in the house of the Lord. Some announcements. There are four boxes of apples downstairs, four varieties. They've all been baptized. Um, one is wine sap. It is non-alcoholic. If you wait too long, it might be, but, but there's, there's fresh, clean bags down there. Please help yourself. Um, don't take the boxes, empty or full. So, but help yourself to the apples. In your bulletin, there's a, a budget for us to discuss at the annual meeting in two weeks. And there are also detailed sheets that Rodney gives. I only made 25 of these because I didn't feel like clear-cutting a forest to print out 75 copies. These are on the back counter. If you have questions, feel free to, to email Jerry because he would love to get all your emails with detailed questions. Um, just a few announcements in the bulletin. You see that we're having soup and sandwiches, and when Jackie sends out the list, it really helps if you respond quickly and tell us what you're bringing. And thank you for all the RSVPs to the Fall Fellowship at the Nelsons. And pray for beautiful weather. That would be lovely. And that's all the announcements I have. Thank you, Andy. In your worship folder, I put uh, some psalms in here I'd like to draw your attention to. Last week, <clears throat> we prayed for uh, peace in Israel. I didn't know exactly what was going on last week, and as the week has unfolded, uh, here is one of our uh, strategic allies, and then uh, the connection with God as well, I think, brings a good concern to the to the church, and so we know a lot more. And uh, it, it is awful the loss of life in, in anywhere and any place. And and here is another place that is dear to many of our hearts. I'm going to draw your attention to Psalm 121 and then 122, and I put it in your worship folder just for you to look at and think about. These are specifically uh, songs that the children of Israel would have sung as they ascended to worship God in Jerusalem. The, the ascent idea is that Jerusalem is up. That their, their worship was focused in a particular place, in a city, and it was essentially visual, a come-see religion. We'll talk about that to some degree today from Hebrews as the tabernacle pictures worship of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here is a fixed place, this temple in Jerusalem. That, that is what it's speaking of, and it would certainly apply, many aspects of this apply to all people who come and gather together to worship the Lord. But think about their perspective as many through many, many years would have sung these psalms as they ascended to go worship God and the thoughts that come from it. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the, to the hills. 
From where does my help come? The answer, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will let, let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. This is who God is. A great theological concept to, to teach and for, for them to know. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. It may appear that way at times, but he isn't. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Wait, what a great promise it is to the people of God. And you get a clue to who those people really are, and it reaches beyond just the ethnic relationship, but it pictures the very people of God this is another portrait of it and then in 122 another ascent as they're going I was glad when they said to me let us go to the house of the Lord I hope that's your prayer as well as you go and come to worship Christ our feet have been standing within your gates O Jerusalem O Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up. Again, this ascent going up to God's holy hill. The tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel. And here is God's sovereign design for it. That's what the decree means. To what? To give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set. <coughs> the thrones of the house of David. And here's a key phrase. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And for that continues today, we will pray. May they be secure who love you. And I think that gives you a hint of what we're praying for. Not just a cessation of hostility and comfort for those that have found loss, either there or anywhere. But you know what we're praying for? that they may be secure who love you. It is a matter of the heart that we're praying for. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, I will seek your good. That is what we're seeking, and that is what we're praying. Yes, comfort, healing, help in a temporal state, great concern. But far beyond that, a change of heart. Secure. Your only security, their only security, our only security is a change of heart to find our security in God and God alone. Jesus was asked in Luke 13 about an awful situation in which, well, a tower fell and then he went on to describe a situation uh, in which terrorists destroyed and conquered people and Jesus's response on both of those concepts was simply this it may sound harsh to begin with but repent likewise you would perish there's one benefit of great chaos and trouble 
in times that are very hard, it causes us to look outside of ourselves and look to Christ and Christ alone, to find our security in him. This is what we're praying for, the salvation of all men, and particularly here in context for Jerusalem, as Paul would say in Romans 11. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. And here he's quoting the prophet Isaiah. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. That's the real problem. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Let's pray for that, for them, for us, and for the world. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we come to you. You are a good and gracious God. Indeed, our help is going to come from you and you alone. I'm thankful that even in the midst of great chaos and confusion, we can see clearly where our refuge is. It is in Christ and Christ alone. I pray for those that are outside of Christ who don't have a affections for you, holy affections brought about through your supernatural work, that you would grant them that even this day. I pray for these Palestinian people who are fleeing bombs and destruction, but may they see what they really need to flee, and that is their own sin, and find protection and security in you and you alone. I pray for an outpouring of the gospel in troubled times and troubled lands, and even in our own. We've been blessed with great security, resources, and protection, much of which we take for granted and squander on a daily basis. I, I pray, Father, that, that we may go through various times of trouble and tribulation, that we will increase our trust in you and you alone. I pray, Father, that you will save many, call many sons and daughters to confess Jesus Christ as Lord for your glory, ultimately. But it also redounds in, in their good, and what a great thing it is. I pray for the good of all. I, I pray that we might find our gladness and joy in you, not something that is temporal and depending on lesser things, but something that is eternal and depending on you and you alone. May we as your people gather together and, and be glad in the house of the Lord and that we know who you are and can praise your holy name. And may it overflow into the lives of people that we come into contact with on a daily basis. And we pray for their help. Help comes from you and you alone. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 reads, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Please take your hymn books and let's stand together and let's confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father this morning and turn to 310. 
310, we'll sing Blessed Be the Name. In Christ alone, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will put my trust in him. Lamentations 3, 24. 506, in Christ alone.
I gave my life for thee. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2, 20. 174. Please turn to Acts 19 and follow me with the scripture. 
I get amazed sitting in the back there and seeing everybody singing and worshiping the Lord. We are so blessed to be in a church where good music is, is presented to help tune our hearts to the Lord, where the hymns that Blake picks out are godly and rich and thick. The scripture reading, the prayers, and the sermon. We are a well-fed church. So Acts 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the, into the name, excuse me, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And this goes to Gordon's lesson this morning in Sunday school. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcist undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this I love this part coming up but the evil spirit answered them Jesus I know in Paul I recognize but who are you in the man in whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that guides us, that strengthens and even convicts and rebukes and leads us to repentance initial repentance, but also daily repentance. And I ask that even today, even now, your Holy Spirit would examine our hearts, 
cleanse us from all unrighteousness and lead us to confess our sins. Help us to be clean even this morning. I thank you for a church that is solid on the word of God, that we believe the Bible cover to cover and we apply it to our lives and it leads us to live holy, godly lives and especially it leads us to worship you, our risen Lord. Please watch over the remainder of our service, that you would fill our pastor with power, that you would touch our hearts with the words. Would you lead all to repentance and forgiveness of sins? Thank you that you have blessed us and that we can give back a little bit. And Father, we know that you do not need a single penny from our wallets. You need our hearts. And we give them to you this morning. And yet we ask that you would use these gifts and offerings to further your kingdom. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Please take your hymn books once more and stand. Let's turn to number 249. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. Jesus paid it all. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. 249.
Amen. Thanks, Blake, Amber, and Church. And actually, we'll be addressing that subject that we've just sung about Christ and his cleansing from Hebrews chapter 9. I invite you to turn there, Hebrews chapter 9. The cleansing that is offered in Christ, another way to think about it or a term would be sanctification. And we'll try to address the, the principle as taught here in this portrait of Christ in the Old Testament tabernacle. And we'll bleed into a couple other aspects about the, the position. It'll go back, kind of back and forth. It won't, may not be as clear a transition to that. The position that we have in Christ as sanctified and then the practical benefit of it as well. If you haven't been with us, we're going through this, I call it a sermon in Hebrews. It's an exemplar, if you will, of first century preaching, the kind the apostles did. I think this is actually preached. One of the sermons that Paul might have preached and Luke recorded. In any case, he, if you'll notice, what, what he does is constantly refer to the scriptures that he has, which we would think of as the Old Testament. It's the majority of our Bible, and we still have it with us. It is still important. It is important because ultimately it paints a picture of Jesus Christ. Maybe difficult to go through some of those aspects and keep them in your mind, but you can see the portrait and the picture and it is significant. The preacher in Hebrews is concerned about his congregation in that they are on the verge of leaving the living God to, to go back to the rituals and ideas of the culture in which they lived. And he said going back to anything else is going away from God. It is going to the path of destruction. So all along in this sermon up to this point, he has constantly warned them about that. And, and, and in their specific case, it, it was going back to Judaism, which has done, which has been fulfilled in Christ. You can find that in chapter 8 and verse 13 as it closes out. It is becoming obsolete. It is ready to vanish away. doesn't mean it doesn't have any value or relevance. It still does. And certainly by way of application, as we already addressed this morning, but ultimately it creates and points this great picture of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the point. The preacher spent a lot of time beginning in his sermon as he opened to talk about this person, that is Jesus Christ. It is none other than God incarnate. He is the creator and sustainer of the world. And the reason that you have breath is because of Christ and Christ alone. He talks about beyond that, that this God incarnate would become a man so that he could mediate between God and man. You need one on both sides of the equation. We'll get to that in a bit. But he mentions that in, in considerable amount, uh, his mediatorial work, which is woven throughout this sermon and ultimately to bring about a promise of redemption. We would call that the new covenant in chapter 8. That new covenant is realized in 
Christ and Christ alone. The point of the Old Testament has always been Christ. That's what it points to. Verse 9 of chapter 9 puts it this way. These are symbolic for the present age, so it even has relevance now. The symbolism that is there. Jesus Christ, and only Jesus Christ, fulfilled all of the prophecies that have been recorded in what we would call the Old Testament. All of these prophecies talked about a deliverer, one who was to come. The Hebrew word for it is is essentially Messiah. The Greek word is Christ. This word here, Messiah, or deliverer, it, it spoke of someone who would come and specific directions about that person and how he would come. And I would argue from the uh, book of Daniel, which I may get into at some point, not today, obviously, but it, it, you can calculate it down to the very day when Jesus walked into Jerusalem. It was predict, predicted that he would come on that very day. Jesus fulfilled all of those prophecies, and it is only Jesus who did. It is only Jesus who could. There is no one else coming. He has come. And as we will learn about, he will come again next time in judgment. You see, to fulfill all of the requirements given, particularly the perfection that is required, but also just to bring about a communion between God and man, as I mentioned, you needed somebody on both sides of that equation to really be a mediator of peace. You need a God-man, and that's who Jesus Christ is, and he is the only one. Paul would tell the church at Colossae in Colossians 2, 9, speaking of Jesus Christ, he says, for in him... Listen, the fullness of deity, that is, all of God, 100%, dwells bodily. Now, God is a spirit, so how is that going to dwell bodily? It it is in Christ, who took on the form of a servant. See Philippians 2. This is Christ, God incarnate, God-man. He is the head. He is the rule. He is of all authority because he indeed is God. The Old Testament priests of the Old Covenant functioned as a mediator, but only in a symbolic way. They couldn't really mediate between God and man. They had problems of their own. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sin, as we've talked about. But not Christ. He had none. And he and he alone then could be the only mediator then, now, and forever. Paul would tell his protege Timothy in in 1 Timothy 2, There is one God, 
and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And how does he mediate? He gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. And what he's saying is this is what God has always planned from eternity past, to have a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This has always been God's plan. We call this the decree of God. This is what he has purposed, and he will accomplish all of his purposes. They unfold at a particular time. We pray for peace in Jerusalem. We pray for peace to the world in general. That peace that we're calling for, as I mentioned earlier, is just not just a cessation of hostilities. That would just be a temporal fix. The peace that we really ultimately, and we do pray for help and healing, don't, don't miss that. I do wish people would quit fighting one another and killing one another. It breaks the heart. But really, what it reminds us of is the real peace that we need. An eternal union with God Almighty. That eternal union can only come about from Jesus Christ, that is, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Lord, who will grant that peace to all who will come to him. Communicating this to his disciples, you remember in John chapter 14, it's just this, this, that whole section there, these last words of Christ to his followers. John 14, 27, I'll quote it for you. Peace I leave with you, Jesus said. Do, do you want peace? Can, can I tell you where to find it? It is one and one alone, Christ. The lack of peace should draw you, your attention to him. Because Christ has it. He is indeed the prince of peace. He says, my peace I leave with you. He's speaking of his disciples. I don't give it to you as the world gives to you. How, how does the world give peace? They just give promises that they break. Every peace treaty has been broken of man and will be broken. The distinction is that God never goes back on his promise. If he promises peace, it is peace. It will occur. And based on that security in Christ, in Christ alone, I don't care whether you're fleeing on a road from bombs or hunkering down from a storm, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And how can you have that confidence? Because you know Christ, and you have peace in him. That's what this preacher is trying to do, is, is to really magnify Christ. He's, he's not trying to minimize those Portraits that came before, those symbols, they're, they're there, they'll always be there. They're there for us to look at and to consider even this day. But don't miss the big picture that's being painted. It is that of Christ. 
Let's look at our text and now read it in its context. What he's going to do in chapter 9 then, after he says that this old covenant has been superseded by the new and it is essentially passing away, uh, that it won't be long in this time frame here, this sermon probably in the mid-60s, A.D. 64 or 5-ish in that range. Uh, the temple, most of us know, was destroyed in A.D. 70. So it's not long after that to where it was completely destroyed. But there is some positive things to that portrait, and he looks back and specifically to the tabernacle, verse 1 of chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship, an earthly place of holiness. That's the key word, holiness. That, was, it, that is what the picture is, the picture of Christ and his holiness. And what is he talking about? He's talking about, we would call it the tabernacle or the tent, translated here, for a tent was prepared. The first section in which were lamps stand and a table of the bread of the presence is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was, this, was a second section called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and an ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Now, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing the ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place has not yet been opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the consciousness of the worshiper, but deal only in food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, Imposed until the time of reformation, that is, till Christ fulfills them. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would give us insight into your word. Speak to us in the way we need to hear from you. May Christ be glorious, and may we find our complete faith and trust in him and him alone. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, he doesn't get into great detail, he says, in the text because they were very aware of what he was talking about. We not so much. I'm not going to go into too much detail. If you want, you can read 40 or 50 chapters in the Old Testament, start in the book of Exodus, and you can find all the details you might want. I mentioned before that don't get hung up on too much of these details. Get the bigger picture. All of them are important. They're all tied in together, but they're all painting a portrait of Christ, and that's what we're looking for primarily. When he says this tent here, tent prepared in verse 2, it is a tent of holiness, a place of holiness, verse 1. And 
immediately, and if you've got your kids drawing here, they can draw a little rectangle, if you will, and that's the perimeter of the tent, and that's what we're talking about now. Go inside the tent, perimeter, which we might think of more of as a fence or a wall, all right, that was surrounding the whole thing, and inside it was kind of like two other compartments, uh, both of them square, together they'd be a rectangle, and he mentions it here, the holy place, and then the most holy place. We'll get into discussing that in days to come. But for now, you're imagining this boundary around this tabernacle or this tent. It's symbolic of the present age. This would have been carried with them and set up through the wilderness journey. And you get the big picture of the illustration. God's people, now not all of them were actually true believers for sure, but they picture true believers who were in bondage, in their case, actual bondage in Egypt. God had delivered them. Then they were in this wilderness journey. During this wilderness journey, God said he would be with them. It was manifested and presented to them in a physical and tangible way that they could see through this tabernacle. And where were they going? To the promised land. So, so that's the big picture that's given. Th this temple uh, in, in mobile form, called a tabernacle, if you will, represents God. The holiness I mentioned before, that's this boundary to it in and of itself. You just couldn't trip into the, most, the holy place and the most holy place. You couldn't see what's going on. There was a high tent uh, wall, perhaps about seven and a half feet. But there was a door, and the door was very large, a passageway into the dwelling place of God, if you will, as it represented a large door that represented, and only a single one, it represents the way to God. And there is only a single way. It is large. It's enough to accommodate all who will come. It is Christ. And Christ will call himself and pick up on that imagery when he says, I am the door. You've heard that before. He is the passageway. The only way in is through Christ. Now, once you get in, then what do you see? Again, be careful not to push those too far, but you'll see two objects in that courtyard. If you're walking in, the first one you come to, we talked about last week, is this brazen altar, and the next will be a brazen altar laver. Last week we talked about the altar. If you remember, it symbolizes the propitiation for sin. Propitiation is a big theological word to know. It's a biblical word. It just simply means appeasement. God's holiness has been offended. It's been rebelled against. It's, there's an infraction and the wages of that infraction, that rebellion, that sin, is death. It must be. God righteously responds to that which is not holy, that which is in rebellion, that which is in sin, in sin with his righteous wrath. It is a wrath that is just. It is right. And 
it must be satisfied might be another term to use. That's what we mean by appeasing or propitiating, if you will. This whole sacrificial system that they did symbolized that propitiation of sin, that appeasement, that satisfaction. The preacher here in Hebrews has already said, he's going to say it again, that it's not effective in actually accomplishing it. It is simply symbolic. That blood of bulls and goats, as awful as it was, it couldn't really take away sin. It was a reminder, however, when they first walked in, and you could first see that imagery, that it needed to be accomplished. God's wrath must be appeased. It was also a reminder of God's graciousness to them and his mercy, because instead of the person who committed the rebellion and sin being strapped to the horns of that altar and slaughtered, they had a substitute. A non-offending, innocent party who vicariously, it's a big word again, means just means substitute, who vicariously took on symbolically that penalty, that wage, and that animal was slaughtered before them. What a vivid picture that is. These awful sacrifices, the bloodiness of it, and I won't get into too detail, I don't want to scare the kids, but maybe we need a little bit. Punishment that you would want to look away from punishment to which you were due. Sin is ugly. These rituals, he will say, these practices in chapter 10 are shadows, is the term he used. A shadow of the reality who is Christ, who would be sacrificed for sin, for sin that he didn't commit. There's no sin in his life, no guile in his mouth, perfect, innocent lamb of God. You see, th that's what they, they kept on picturing. They, they had to have perfect sacrifices that, from their point of view, didn't have any blemishes or flaws because it pictured one who, in reality, did not. The, these, uh, all the time, were were symbols of that. So we look then at this first stop. We recognize our rebellion against God, and, and they would see that, and the need for a cessation of hostility, <laughs> an appeasement of wrath, peace. And the only way to have peace would to have penalty paid, sin atoned for, and it pictures what Christ has done. So we move on beyond that altar of sacrifice, and what's before us, there's another object. It, it's called the laver. Think of it as a large 
basin, water basin, holding water. informs us about the principle of sanctification or cleansing, if you will. Now, it had a practical functionality, as you could understand. The priests were there sacrificing these animals, and you could imagine what a mess it was. And they're going to go then into the holy place, to an inner tent, dwelling with God and they can't carry all of this filth in there. Their feet were dirty. They wore sandals and dusty ground. Their hands were bloody. And so it provides a practical thing of cleansing. But again, this is for a purpose of portraying something far greater. If you want to see what this labor was about. I won't read all of it again. You can read through the book of Exodus and get greater detail. And I highly encourage you to read through the Old Testament. These are sections that are worth understanding and knowing in your mind. And it'll give you a connection when you hear about it at other times. But Exodus chapter 30, I'll just read a little section here for you. This labor symbolizes the need of purification or sanctification, if you will, to enter into God's presence. Exodus 30 and verse 17. The Lord says to Moses, you shall make a basin of bronze and with it stand a bronze for washing. Note that idea of washing. That's where the water is. You shall put it then between the tent of the meeting and the altar. So before you get into the holy place and after that altar, you have this bronze laver. You shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn food for offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. So this was not an optional thing. This was incredibly important. In fact, he's going to repeat that essentially in the next verse, verse 21 of Exodus 30. They shall wash their hands and their feet so they may not die. God was pretty serious about that, wasn't he? You get the death penalty for not washing your hands? Try that with your kids. Uh, I don't recommend it. Because it isn't this washing that does anything, it's what it symbolizes. Without a cleansing, you're not going to stand before a holy God. You will die. That's the point. Don't be arrogant and think, oh, somehow I'm going to stand before God because I'm better than so-and-so. No, that's fine. You, you, you have to be as good as God. And you don't have a chance. But in his grace and in mercy, he says, here's the water. Wash so that you don't die. That's the point. It's this rite. It's this symbol that demonstrates a need for spiritual cleansing. Now, now I'm talking about this altar, and that's the sacrifice. And now you've got this labor with this washing. 
in our minds, it's helpful to have different aspects communicated this way. But I just want to assure you one thing before we go further. These are not like separate different acts and rituals that need to be done. All of this is included in salvation and, and much more than, than are even brought out. These are just aspects of it. And for our minds, it's helpful to think of them in a compartmental way so that we get a different uh, idea of what's going on. It's almost like getting refractions of light, if you will, and seeing those glorious colors, and we can point out this color and that color and this color, but they're all the same refraction, you get it? So that's what's going here, I think, is a better way to think about it. This is an important concept to grasp, this idea of spiritual cleansing, so this one is noted in a great way illustrated and symbolized through this washing in this labor. The brazen altar pictures this wrath of God being atoned for by the sacrifice, ultimately Christ, who would bear our sin on his body on the tree. Our sin imputed to Christ, he didn't sin, but he bore our sin, and therefore we're clean. There's no condemnation. Here I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8, so you can see the state of those who Christ mediates on the behalf of. For those who have been atoned for by the sacrifice of Christ, they have been made perfectly clean before God. And Paul will begin in Romans 8. It's just a cherished verse for me and one I highly recommend memorizing. There is therefore now, con now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Well, he's already died. It, it, it's already been atoned for. There, there's no more wrath, there's no more charge, there's no more guilt. And Paul will go on, and I'll just jump down to verse 31 in your reading. Why this state? Be, because what should we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Everyone's against you. Who can be successfully against you? What, could a terrorist be successfully against you? No. Could a storm? No. Could disease? No. Nothing. How do you know that? Because here's what God does. He didn't spare his own son. It is Christ who paid the sacrifice. And it was Christ for all who are in him. There's no charge against God's elect. Well, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who is going to bring a charge against God's elect, God's chosen? It's God who justifies. That is, God is the one who has seen the sacrifice of Christ and said, 
it's sufficient. You know it's sufficient because he rose from the dead. Who's then going to condemn anyone then? Because all of my sin have been put on Christ. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, that's the one who was raised and who is at the right hand of God. And I want you to see this because this ties into Hebrews. When he says in, in the very first chapter in Hebrews, remember he says Christ, after he made propitiation for his sin, he went to the very throne of God. And what is he doing at the throne of God? Here Paul is repeating it. It is he is indeed interceding for us. This is our high priest who lives forever. That's how secure you are in Christ. This is what we mean being sanctified in him. So then what's going to separate you? He, he separated you unto God. What will bring that apart? Distress? Tribulation? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Or sword? See, he leaves a different type of peace, doesn't he? It's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded sheep to be slaughtered. That's how you might feel, and I understand that, particularly when everything falls apart, whatever it might be. But no, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And the call is then to look to Christ. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. For I'm, Paul would say, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen, right? Do you know that? Man, that'll make you courageous even on your deathbed. That's the state of the believer. So why, why does he separate this idea between this altar where Christ dies and then this laver that has this water in it? Because it's one thing to not have condemnation of death on you, and that's a good thing. But you know the positive thing is? You have a flourishing life in Christ. It's not just get out of judgment free card. It, it is so much more than this. The, the, the promise is, the, uh, is a, an, a life abundant that, that isn't, uh, it, it isn't interrupted by the temporal issues that we might be dealing with. Tribulation, whatever. It, here's what it is. I'll make it simple and not exact, but just simple for our mind to think about it. The altar equals death, right? So what does the labor equal? Life. I think that's the point. This is a common theme in the Old Testament. I was reading through Zechariah. I'll just read you this little section here because I was looking about 
the concept of salvation of God's people. And it's, this is all through the Old Testament. I'll give you a few passages. You can just listen if you want. Zechariah, that's a little book here, there towards the end, one of the minor prophets, the minor only because they're not as long as the major. But looking to a future day and the restoration of Israel, you know how it's pictured? On that day, 13.1, Zechariah, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. It is a fountain. This idea of water is, is often associated with what God does to bring about life, to bring about a cleansing. I'll read a few passages for you. Isaiah 6, 1, 16. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your deeds and, and from before my eyes to do evil, to learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead for the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Pure. This is the imagery of cleansing. It's the water of the word. Isaiah 12, 3. With joy, then, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Have you ever been filthy? I mean, th this is not a great analogy because it's just temporal, but have you ever been filthy working or doing something and, and then, then you stand there and, and you get clean from water, don't you? It's a great experience, isn't it? But it's only temporal. This is talking about true and eternal. Th this imagery of the cleansing water. And, and, and beyond the, just the cleansing of it, it, it brings about nourishment, if you will, and health. Could you imagine trying to live without drinking fluid, without drinking water? Our bodies are mostly made up of water, I'm told. Isaiah 44, I will pour water on thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. That's the idea of this water. It brings out, a, it is a water that pictures that which is life. But many won't have it. I mean, they might find another source of satisfaction. And the weeping prophet Jeremiah sums it up this way. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for themselves cisterns that can hold no water. Broken cisterns. The picture is, you imagine your choice. You can have a, a beautiful crystal uh, mountainous lake, uh, wa water flowing from a, uh, a mountain and into a lake that, that is unfathomable. And you reject that and say, no, I'll go dig a hole in the ground myself. 
and put some water in it, and then it leaks out. That's the imagery there of rejecting the very water of life, that flourishing aspect of who God is. John picks up on this theme quite a bit in his writing, and I, here I invite you to turn to John chapter 4. We'll just fly through this a little bit. I'm not going to do too comprehensive about it, but from now on, you might see this aspect of water both in the cleansing aspect of it and also in the fulfilling aspect of it. The, the nourishment or flourishing might be another word. Jesus uses this analogy when he speaks to this Samaritan woman who you're familiar with in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus goes to this well and uh, this woman is there drawing out water and Jesus uses that as an opportunity to communicate a greater truth. You drop down to verse 13 in John 4, Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. That water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What a beautiful picture. You get the imagery that's trying to be communicated here? This is, this is what Christ is talking about. He is the, that very water of life. It, it brings about not only a cleansing aspect, but a nourishing aspect, a living water so that indeed you will live. In chapter 6, Jesus describes himself as the bread of life. That is the, just another analogy in the same vein here. That is, your sustenance will ultimately come from him. He says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and, and he jumps back to this water aspect, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Why? Because he satisfies those very needs. Chapter 7, John continues with that theme. <coughs> this is Christ's teaching. Remember, He's pointing back to that cleansing aspect of water and the fulfilling aspect of water. And verse 37 of chapter 7, they have this great feast, and they know what's going on at the feast. Here Jesus stands up and cries this out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Do you want fulfillment? Do you want flourishing? Do you want cleansing? Come to Christ. Come to Christ and drink. And what does it mean to drink? What does it mean to come to him? He explains it. <coughs> Whoever believes in me, trusts in me, puts their faith in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I'll finish up with John's preaching on this from the, as the book of Revelation closes out, you can look it up or just listen. Revelation 21, 
it's done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, Jesus said. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Why? He paid it all. You don't dig out your own holes for water. They'll just be leaky and empty. He is the source of life, the source of flourishing, and he's paid it all. Revelation 22.1, talking about the eternal state, and notice the beautiful picture wrapped in here again. Then the angel showed me a river of the water of life. Have you seen it? I hope you do. I hope you go to that source. And here it's described in a picturesque way, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, through the middle of the, of the street of the city, on either side of the river, then, is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. What, what healing do we need now? Salvation in Christ. It, it, it's a beautiful picture of flourishing. This is imagery going back to the Garden of Eden. It is what it's looking like here and this image of the water of life. I'll finish with just two more points on this. I've already kind of included this in just talking about the principal aspect of what this water pictures and ultimately, I would say, life. But there is, as I mentioned, a, a positional cleansing that brings about life. That is, when you come to Christ and you put your trust in him, then, as we mentioned already in Romans 8, you're clean, positionally before him. If you remember, Jesus talked to Nicodemus and said, unless somebody is born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot even see the kingdom of God, John 3, 5. Water is the water of life, that cleansing power. Paul would tell Titus that it isn't because of our works that we've done, but according to his mercy by the washing of the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is a dynamic work to talk about how salvation occurs. In 1 Corinthians 6, it talks about a laundry list of ungodly people prior to coming to Christ and receiving that cleansing that is provided in Christ. But we're changed. In 1 Corinthians 6, 11, I'll read it for you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. That is, set apart. You were justified, declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. This is a dynamic work of God, not man. That is your position that, is, that you're afforded in Christ to be clean. 
But there's a problem in this life that we have to deal with, and Jesus explained that by the way of another analogy in a object lesson, if you will, in John 13. And here I invite you to consider looking at that. John chapter 13. Because it might help to explain this ritual and what is going on, because a lot of people, again, look at the brush strokes and miss the picture. And have made this idea of quote-unquote foot washing as some sort of ritual. Christ is not teaching a ritual. He's teaching the reality. This is not an ordinance given to the church. But it's an illustration he gives to his disciples so that they can understand this idea of spiritual cleansing. Positionally, you're perfectly clean before God. But practically, we know in this life, we're not. And this is a beautiful illustration of it. In John chapter 13, he's there right before his death and teaching his disciples. And he knows that his hour has come in verse 1. He's going to depart from this world to the Father. And he, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It talks about the devotion that Christ has to his disciples. And by the way, I would just add, as you continue to read on, it's not just for those that were in his immediate presence. It is all of those who follow Christ. You can't imagine how loved you are. Someone else may not love you. Everybody else might hate you. It doesn't matter. If your relationship with Christ, that is eternal love. And it is a love, if you will, to the end. Well, here's the circumstance, verse 2. During the supper, when the devil had already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose up from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, taken a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a laver. You have a basin here. And he began to wash the disciples' feet. <coughs> Practically, their feet were dirty. And we know the culture. They would have had a servant do that. Or one of the others in the group might do it for somebody else because it's kind of hard to do. It's just part of their culture and tradition. But that's not the point that's going on here. Is This is not about feet with dust on it. This is about something else. It's an illustration. It's a picture. And we get a better view of it, of what's going on here, when verse 6, when he says Simon Peter, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus said to him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now. But afterwards, you will understand. Peter then, demonstrating that he didn't understand, says, well, you shall never wash my feet. But Jesus says to him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. He, he's pointing out a spiritual truth that if you are not clean, you have nothing to do with him. And, and the kind of cleansing here, he'll explain it in a minute. What does that mean? You're not going to have fellowship with me unless you... Have your feet clean. 
Peter then says to him, Lord, well, then not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Again, demonstrating he doesn't know what's going on right now. He'll get it later, and we have the rest of the story, so I'll explain as Jesus does to him. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. You get the picture? He's demonstrating the difference between that which is positionally clean and that which is practically clean. He doesn't need to get it all done again. Just those parts that are exposed. He's pointing to this idea of practical daily cleansing. And how will that be accomplished? By some sort of ritual that you'll engage in? No, it's by confessing your sin and going to Christ. Here I'll invite you one more text, and that's 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, and John gives a, a good picture of explanation here. of what I mean by this daily cleansing for practical righteousness in this life. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, it says, We walk in the light, he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So this is where we're at. We're in the light. We're cleansed. We have this positional righteousness with God. But if we say we have no sin, verse 8, we deceive ourselves when the truth is not in us. What do you mean? I thought we were cleansed. Practically, in this life, we bear about that part of unredeemed humanity that remains until we stand perfect before God. Positionally, we're there. Practically, it won't be demonstrated until this body is done away with. But here's the good news. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and do what? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The one another fellowship back in verse 7 often is thought of as fellowship with other believers. And that is a practical application of it. But you know what it's really focusing on? Fellowship with him. We're walking in light as he's in the light, right? We have fellowship with one another. Who's the one another? It's fellowship with God. It is a restoration of our relationship with God. If you regard iniquity in your heart, he will not hear you. Because you've broken off that. So, so what do you do about the sin? What do you do about the iniquity? You confess it to him. And recognize that he's faithful. And God is just to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This cleansing then restores our fellowship with God. And by a practical result will re result also often and most of the time 
in our relationship with fellow believers. But ultimately, <coughs> our relationship with God is in mind. We need to have a cleansing. It's from sin and it's provided in Christ, in Christ alone. This labor, as they wash, pictured that the perfect cleansing that they had based on the appeasement, the atonement, the propitiation on the altar, and then for daily activity, it's always looking to him for that practical righteousness that is needed, which leads to a flourishing before God. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Father, we're thankful for all that you have done in Christ, for the pictures and portraits that you've left of this great reality. May they burn in our mind the, the illustrations, the analogies, the, the objects. It's a way to communicate to us this great truth that is beyond our thoughts. I pray, Father, that we will all hear the bride and the Spirit say, come, and come quickly. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take a moment now to think on these things and respond to Christ in the way he has spoken to you today. Take a moment now. Father, I pray that you grant us the great satisfaction in Christ when we find our fulfillment in Christ and Christ alone. Amen. We have in our hymn books this 392, We're Marching to Zion. I thought I'd leave it in there this time. It kind of goes with this, these psalms that we talked about earlier, 121 and 122. It, it's a hymn here that, uh, that again, pictures the, the concept, and we can, in solidarity with the very people of God, pictures this idea of our, of our marching to glory in, in this life, of uh, looking to Christ, to worship him. The ransom of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing. Let's come with great singing and look forward to our return to God. Stand now, 392. Does it make a sinus? Does this make a sinus? <laughs> In a spiritual sense. Spiritual. Yes. Okay. Amen. 392. Let's all stand. Mm -hmm.
dismissed. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways and how inscrutable <clears throat> are his judgments. For from him and through him and to him all are all things, and to him be glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. We're dismissed. Thank you.